Thank you very much for coming this evening and gracing our home. I'm very, very grateful that Maharaj has come. Uh, and, and what started off as a few minutes meeting many years ago with Maharaj and me, uh, we went on discussing Maharaj's book, which I've shared with you, many of you, uh, a few years ago. And since my father was a dental surgeon, and Maharaj says transcendental surgeon, <laughs> many saints used to visit our home when I was a teenager. And many of them are written in the book with a lot of detail. And we were discussing saint after saint after saint. And we had a gap of 10, 12 years when we met some of those saints. And I invited Maharaj over home and now I think it's almost Sankirtan Prabhu is keeping track, but I think the fifth time, fourth or fifth year in a row, that we have a small gathering. And uh, Maharaj's diary has got busier and busier and busier. And it is very nice that he is meeting, he is addressing the House of Commons, uh, programs of banking, meeting President Obama, meeting Prime Minister Modi. And I think inspiring all of them to to act responsibly in a humanitarian way in the world. Maharaj also has um, inspired a lot of people to do a lot of good in this country, whether it is hospitals, food for life, orphanages, hospices, running medical camps in the interiors of Uttar Pradesh, uh, I work with some other faith-based institutions in Uttarkashi, Divine Life Society, and Swami Chidanand, who is also mentioned in the book. And I requested Bhakti Vedanta during the Uttarkashi crisis to help us in in the hills of uh, the Himalayas. And people from Bhakti Vedanta have been there many times and helped us in the disaster areas of Uttarkashi and in providing regular medical care to villages that don't have any care and will not have a lot of medical care for the next many, many years. We are here to listen to Maharaj and to Swami Radhanath. Say, say, is it Maharaj? Is it Swami Radhanath? Feel free. Uh, we are honored, uh, Maharaj, that you are at our home in a quiet, small gathering, which makes it more interactive and personal. Uh, and we are very grateful to all of you for coming in. I will hand over to Maharaj. And if we can, we can also have a question-answer session. From the temple, you must visit. I will take you all personally to the temple in Chaupati. It is a wonderful, wonderful temple. And it will surprise you with its warmth, with its architecture, with its devotion, and how the temple has been the center to bring people to spirituality and to the bhakti mark that Maharaj represents in this country. One great thing that I find about uh, Maharaj is that he has been exposed in his life to so many different parts of Indian spirituality that in him is a confluence of what we say is Indian spirituality. Though a young teenager from Chicago of Jewish origin, finding his home and purpose in India is itself an amazing story. Maharaj, over to you. Thank you so much for coming on behalf of all of us. I am very grateful and very honored and very happy to be.
be with all of you this evening. Thank you to Vivek and family for opening the doors of your beautiful home for all of us. Could everyone hear? <clears throat> I asked what I should speak about this evening, and Vivek gave me a topic. Recognizing the divinity in everyone. Yes? And how to bring out the best in others. I just got this topic on the way in the car. <laughs> there is a beautiful verse in Bhagavad Gita. It is in the fifth chapter. Vidyavinaya sampane brahmani vadi kavihastini sunichaiva supake cha pandita samadarshana. I remember when I was young, growing up as a teenager in the 1960s in America. It was a time of a lot of social conflict. And I was really searching for answers. On the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, it's, there is a verse from the Old Testament inscribed which essentially says that in this land, all beings are given equal liberty. But I saw people of African-American descent practically prisoners in the ghetto. And I remember reading that after America got its independence from Britain, one-sixth of the population was African descent. And they were all slaves. And I read, I even read this this summer. It's there at the Liberty Bell. There's a there's an exhibition. And it, it explains that there was a law in America. The Constitution says all men are created equal and liberty and justice for all. But at that time, there was a law. It was a crime to, to murder another person's slave. That means your own slave, it wasn't a crime because they were your property. And we were sensitive to these things in the 1960s because we saw that there really was not freedom. Freedom was selective according to one's religion, according to the color of one's skin, according to one's particular 
social status. So I became very active in the civil rights movement. And of course, so many of my uncles and aunts were killed by the Nazis in Europe because of their religion. So why is there so much hate and discrimination on the basis of these external differences between people? And I was demonstrating, I became a member of the counterculture, uh, which is a sophisticated name for the hippie movement. And, and I was marching, and I was getting tear gassed by the police, and I thought it was for such a high, noble cause. <laughs> but I heard the words of Gandhi, that we should be the change we want to see in the world. And I was more and more beginning to believe that. I was at, well, I went for a summer vacation. It's described in this book. I wrote The Journey Home to Europe with a friend between semesters of college, and I was supposed to come back in August, but I never came back. And in England, I was at a rock festival called the Isle of Wight. And there was a musician named Jimi Hendrix who played. And I was just in outside of London a few days after that. And I saw in the newspaper that he was dead from an overdose of drugs. I was thinking this man was a millionaire and he had so much popularity and so much talent and any pleasure he he wanted was at his disposal but he wasn't happy so really what am i looking for and i i understood more and more that unless we find something deep and rich in values, in purpose, in meaning within ourselves. We can't really contribute so much of real good to the world. And then I found this verse while I was traveling through India from the Bhagavad Gita. I recited at the beginning. The translation is true wisdom is to see all beings with equal vision. Whether one is a high priest or a simple householder, or whether one is black or white or red or yellow or brown, whatever one's religion, whatever one's social status, whether one is a human or an elephant or a cow or a dog or a cat, Wherever there's life, it is sacred. 
And when we understand the sacredness within ourselves, we could recognize that sacredness in others. And if we cannot see it in another being, it's because we haven't found it within ourselves. And from my studies of various religions, philosophies, and spiritual paths, the essence is that, to actually uncover the true nature of oneself. That the living force, the atma, or the soul, is divine. It's a part of God. And it's godly by nature. But due to the ahankar, the false ego, like a cloud that covers the beautiful light of the sun of our true nature, we become so complicated and implicated in, in distractions. We're constantly being bombarded by weapons of mass distraction. It is said that in a evolved human society, people love people and use things. But unfortunately, in the world we live, so often people love things and they use people to get them or to keep them. That can give some very temporary, superficial, shallow sense of satisfaction to the mind and senses, but it can give no satisfaction to the heart. Because the heart is seeking only one thing, to be loved and to love. And when we don't have that, and no matter what else we have, it's not going to really give us lasting pleasure. I'll tell a story about Kansas. That, that, remind, that reminds me of other stories, actually. <laughs> um, <clears throat> just this last September, I was in Denver, Colorado. And I was staying at someone's house, and some of my very dear friends came from Kansas. They live near Lawrence, Kansas, <laughs> and they have a farm. And this girl, she brought her children, she's a lady, and she brought some pumpkins, <laughs> I guess squash. And this particular squash was a big squash, it was about this big, and it was shaped kind of like a club. It was, and then it goes big like that. And she brought these pumpkins to this family to cook, you know, for for me, I guess. <laughs> and they had this little boy. And he saw that pumpkin and 
just started playing with the pumpkin. And he was having so many creative games. He was playing all day with that pumpkin. And he was really enjoying. Sometimes he was riding it like a horse, and other times he was like using it as a club to, you know, beat up, you know, invisible people. <laughs> and sometimes he was rolling on it, and sometimes he was using it like a typewriter. He was doing so many things with this pumpkin. And he was completely fascinated by it. And I was there for three days. <laughs> and whenever you know, we weren't out doing something with the child, he was just with this pumpkin. <laughs> now, a few months before that, I was at the home of the daughter of one of my dear friends in Illinois. And her, her and her husband are extremely wealthy. But in order to make the wealth and sustain the wealth, they both work a lot. And they have a son who is about the same age. And he took me down to his basement. It's a big house. And he had every kind of toy you can imagine. And some of them were really high-tech. They were computerized toys and pinball machines and games and, 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 and weapons. <laughs> there was probably definitely thousands and thousands, if not tens and thousands of dollars worth of playthings. And the reason there's so many is he would play with it for a while and then he would get tired of it and he would just be really obnoxious. I want something else. I want something else. And they'd have to get him something else and he'd play with that and he'd get tired with it. I want something else. Because his parents, they gave him all things, but they didn't have time to give him the attention, the affection, and love he wanted so he couldn't be satisfied with anything. But this other little boy, because he was given the affection he needed, he was completely blissful with a pumpkin, which didn't cost anything. It just grew. <laughs> and according to true spiritual tradition, the origin of that propensity to love and be loved that's within our heart is to feel God's love and to love God. God has many names as has appeared throughout history. The Srimad Bhagavatam, one great scripture of India, describes when you water the root of a tree, the water naturally extends to every part of the tree. The root, the flowers, the twigs, the leaves, the branches. And similarly, when you put food in the stomach, it goes to every organ, every cell of your body, the nutrients and the energy. So similarly, when we learn to love God, because everything is Connected to God is the root of all existence. Janmadhyasyagyataha, 
the cause of everything that exists, the mother and the father of all living beings. We can't love God and not love everyone. We may not love what people do, but we see that the person is beyond that cloud of whatever distractions may be there. Life is sacred. To recognize that is evolved consciousness. Just recently I had a really nice, it was for me, I'm just a little person, but it was very special. I was invited on January 26th. That's Republic Day in India. Um, the president of India, Pranav Mukherjee. I was invited to his palace, the Rastriya Bhavan. Yeah, Rastrapati Bhavan. And he was doing a reception for Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. And Narendra Modi and everyone was there. So there was just a couple hundred people there. And it was in the back garden. So I was like about this far away from all the people. There was Sonia Gandhi and there was Manmohan Singh and all the ministers of the government and Barack Obama and Narendra Modi and all of the other people like that. And we all stood and they played the national anthem. There was military bands. People were receiving each other. And a bird flew overhead. And I looked up at that bird, and it kind of looked like the bird was looking at me. <laughs> and I was a little touched by that. <laughs> he wasn't looking at the president, he was looking at <laughs> I was thinking that that bird, there's a person looking through the eyes of that bird, looking down, and I'm, there's a person in my body looking through my eyes, looking up. And the living force, the atma, the soul in that bird, is a child of God, just like me. And just like the prime minister and the president and all these other people, some of them were in power, some of them were not in power. I was thinking the bird can't rule over a country, but these people ruling over the country can't fly in the sky. So God has given everyone a certain place. And the sacredness of life is there in both. And it wasn't that this realization was bringing down the distinction of the prime ministers or the presidents. It was actually bringing up and bringing up the bird. Life is sacred. The potential of that divinity of life itself is so important to understand. 
If we can't see it within ourselves, we can't see it anywhere. And if we don't see it anywhere, it means we don't see it within ourselves. In the Bible, Lord Jesus, he spoke that what profiteth a man that gains the whole world but loses his immortal soul? That's a universal truth. To understand God's love for us and to be an instrument of that love through whatever we do, whether we're mothers or fathers or teachers or bankers or politicians or farmers or software engineers or swamis, whatever our role may be in society, the true happiness that we can feel and, 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 and give is in being an instrument of that grace, that love that is within us. And it's not our love, it's God's love. And that's something so beautiful. When my guru, Srila Prabhupada, came to the West, he came in 1965, actually. This year is the 50th anniversary of when he left the King George dockyard in Calcutta on a cargo ship and sailed 38 days to New York City. And he had 40 rupees, which was then equal to $7. But he couldn't change it because no one wanted rupees in those days. <laughs> but he was living in New York and he didn't know any, but he wanted to give something very special to people. What He wanted to give the love that he had discovered within himself. And he started a little storefront and made it into a temple in the Lower East Side. And then in 1967, some of his students brought him to Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. And he started a little storefront there. And he lived there. <laughs> and there was a journalist who came to interview him. And at one point said, Swamiji, why have you come here? And he said, I have come to remind you what you have forgotten, that you're a child of God, <laughs> that there's happiness, there's love within yourself. It needs to be uncovered. And that's the purpose of all religions, of all spiritual paths to be an instrument of that love in whatever we do. And the journalist said, but there's so many hippies here. He said, Swamiji, what is a hippie? And this is an American journalist. And Srila Prabhupada was at that time a 73-year-old sadhu <laughs> from Vrindavan, from <laughs> a holy place in India. And when he said, what is a hippie? Prabhupada said, you know better than me. 
And then Prabhupada said, something extraordinary. Then the person gets, Could you, you are from India? You're a yogi? Can you show me a miracle? Prabhupada said, my miracle is I have made hippies into happies. <laughs> and, and how did he make hippies into happies? <laughs> because he saw something in us that we didn't know existed. Many of these people were coming and they were addicted to drugs, and they were in a whole culture of free sex, and they were in a culture of, of um, revolting against practically any moralities or values. And Prabhupada said, and most of them didn't even bathe. <laughs> and he was seeing that there's something very beautiful and divine within them. You're a child of God. That makes you divine. You have the potential to do such beautiful, wonderful things within this world if you just tap into your own potential. And because he saw it in us, People who are just looking everywhere for everything and revolting against everything because they just saw so much hypocrisy about, uh, among people who had everything that everybody was trying to get. It was really a time of revolution, anarchy. But he was seeing something so good within them. That you're a child of God. Love for God is within you. Peace is within you. Compassion is within you. The true testament of an enlightened state, as we heard from that verse, is compassion toward all beings. Equal vision means compassion. Paradukaduki. The golden rule in the Bible is to do unto others as you want them to do to you. And in the Sanskrit literatures of India, it says parodukaduki. An enlightened person is one who other people's suffering is my suffering. And other people's happiness is my happiness. When we're not obsessed, when we're actually feeling satisfied, when we're actually feeling this a certain liberation, then we're not looking for happiness. We're seeking ways to share happiness, to make others happy. That's compassion. So he was seeing in these people something so beautiful. And because we could, we could feel it, yes, he sees that I'm something very special. I'm something very valuable. I must be. 
by his compassion to us, he actually gave us faith that we could find that within ourselves. And take to a spiritual process by which it could be uncovered, not in a sectarian way, but in a very genuine way. So when I saw that little bird flying overhead, I was wondering if, because sometimes birds, you know, drop things. <laughs> Because I was so enlightened by just seeing the, the, the equality, essentially, of the bird and everyone on the rest of us as far as, of course, not equality as far as our capacity of what we could do in the world, but the equality of, of life. I was thinking it would really be a dramatic conclusion to the story if the bird left his mark on one of these people. <laughs> but, he, but he didn't. <laughs> I can't make that part up. <clears throat> but really, leadership is about bringing the good out in others. But we can't bring it out unless we see it. I think last time I was here, I was telling about my favorite teacher when I went to high school. Because when I went to high school, it was a really conservative kind of school where the popular person was like the best football player. And I was kind of like that, but then this, it didn't make sense to me. So I grew my hair long and became kind of radical. And none of my teachers liked that. <laughs> so they were, and the subjects they were trying to teach me really didn't interest me very much because I had so many I idealistic thoughts of how to change the world. But I had one teacher who just in saw so much good in me and actually really took me by surprise. He really liked me and he really encouraged me. Others would chastise me, he encouraged me. And actually he changed me a lot. And to this day, I thank him. That was 1968 when he was my teacher, I was a senior in high school. Because he saw something good and brought it out. And this is so much the beauty of, of parenthood and of leadership and, and, on every level. And there are so many stories of saintly people who saw good in others, even crooks and thieves, and, and somehow or other, by seeing that and reminding them and value, giving value to that in a person, it transformed them. 
Of course, justice is required in a world. But prevention is the best justice. And the best way to prevent is to actually educate people in values, in universal values, and to remind people that those values are inherent within themselves. I think that's the topic you wanted me to speak about. (laughs) The first time I met Vivek, Within five minutes, we were lifelong friends. Because somehow he read this book, The Journey Home, and it's about different um, religious people and sadhus that I met between 1970 and 72, 73. And there were so many I was meeting because I was traveling through the Himalayas and through the different holy places of India. And almost everyone I met, he lived with. And he was telling me, they they would all come to meet your father. And some of these people nobody knew anything about, but he knew. Yeah. It's a very special connection. Thank you. And I'm so grateful. Your friends are always such beautiful, special people. Would anyone like to ask any questions or or share any realizations? Please. Is it about Kansas? No, Kansas has had plenty of visibility tonight. Thank you. Well, I just, you know, we're all of a similar age group here, but as I was reading your book, I was considering my role as a parent with my kids, and I was thinking you had such a strong awareness about self in your late teens and early 20s. What kind of advice could you give us for encouraging that in our children? It's a challenging time in many ways. Of course, you know better than me because you're a parent. I just see from a Swami's perspective. (laughs) But when I was a little boy in the 1950s, most of the television shows were family shows. And each one kind of, every show had a of a moral at the end. It's kind of t- to teach you to be a, a nice person or something like that. <laughs> to not be selfish or not to be egoistic. And almost all of them were like that. They were all black and white, so there wasn't any special effects. It's usually just people talking and <laughs> playing. But they were value 
directed. It was, but today, you know, there's so much special effects and so much computer games and so much um, unbelievable um, sensationalism and violence and sex is just so um, in people's face. It's so blatant. And of course, you know, the whole idea of freedom of speech and letting all those things happen, that's another subject. You know, it's, it's a very fine balance, freedom of speech, and you know, what's, what, is, um, what is healthy for a child to grow up with. Do people really appreciate the song of the birds or the, the rising and setting of the sun, or are they just, you know, on their computer games and with their cell phones? And <laughs> so there's so many distractions in that way. So it is a very challenging time. But it's very crucial that through the way we live and through the choices that we as parents make, we can um, try to inculcate these virtues and these values and these, these simple ways of being happy and spiritual. Because the happiest things in life are the simplest things. But things have become so complex. And when children are being brought up completely surrounded by these complexities, it's more of a challenge for the parents to actually help them to understand and to give them these, these simple things. You know, for a family to sit down and have dinner together, where they're not all talking to, to other people on their cellular phones, <laughs> and texting messages to the person across the table. <laughs> it's a challenge but somehow to give them that value of the simple things in life is very, very important. To find the self. So I guess as much as possible to try to live and, and exemplify this, these ideals and to try to, to bring in people and um, experiences that can help them to connect with these simple human spiritual values. It's very, very important. And if we can give them that, even if they're being distracted, still the seed is planted. And if we plant these seeds of goodness, of divinity within them, 
then even if they're distracted in many ways, at that ine inevitable time where they're really kind of see through the emptiness of all these distractions, that seed is there. Otherwise, they just are endlessly exploring those distractions and their frustrations could lead them to depression and all sorts of other things. Depression is something that's really, it's like an epidemic actually in the world today. Like never before. Why? We have so much um, advancement and it's not just the people without the technology that are getting depressed. It's because there's a certain emptiness and superficiality that's just not satisfying people. Because they don't have those simple, basic needs of the heart being served. So even if the society around is complicating children's lives with all of these things, if we can plant within their hearts these simple value virtues of the value of, of the true self, the value of compassion, the value of humility, the value of honesty, the value of integrity, the value, the joy of serving, I'm 64 years old, but when I remember my mother and father when I was young, they were always just trying to serve, trying to help others. And I revolted against them totally because they were part of the older generation, which was really like an enemy for the counterculture. But when I saw through everything and I, not only the superficialities of what I was revolting against, but the superficialities of who I was and everybody revolting with me was. <laughs> and that seed of the goodness of their will to serve. I often give the example, it was my mother's birthday. This is something that really, really had an impact in my life, but I didn't realize it till years later. I came home from school. It was my mother. No, it wasn't school. I came home from playing because it was in August. And it was my mother's birthday, and I forgot to get her any gift. And I was afraid. <laughs> so I ran into the backyard, and we just had a really tiny little backyard. And my mother personally had a rose garden, and it only had four rose bushes on it. And there was only about two or three roses growing. And I ripped one of the roses off. You know, I didn't have one of those cutters, I just kind of ripped it off. I was like about eight years old. And I ran in and it had thorns on it. And I gave her the rose and said, happy birthday. 
And she looked at it. And she smelled it. She put it to her head. She put it to her heart. And she cried. She said, thank you very much. She knew I stole it from her garden. Absolutely, 100% she knew. <laughs> she said, it's not the thing, it's the thought that counts. That you thought of me to do this is an act of love. That's what she told me. It's the thought of love that counts. And if she was given a pearl necklace or a rose stolen from her own garden, it had the same value if it was offered with affection. The value of anything is the love which is exchanged. Now she said it then, and it moved me, but I didn't really understand. But later on, I understood how such little gestures like that very much helped me to seek what I really gave my life to find and to share that message with others. I hope that helps. <laughs> Thank you. And of course our schools, since we have influence over our schools, how to give people an experience of, of spirituality and of nature. And we have, I just, today I came from an eco-village. We have about two hours out of Mumbai where we have organic farming and we take care of animals, cows and goats and sheep and donkeys and dogs. And we have, we make our own bricks out of the soil that we have. We, we have organic ways of purifying sewage. We have a saying, every time you flush your toilet, the papayas get bigger. <laughs> Some yoga students, there's 95 yoga students from America there, staying for a month. And when they saw these papayas, they called them Pupayas. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> there's actually last year 14,000 students from Mumbai came there in buses to spend a day, or some of them spend like three days, just to kind of be in an area where they learn how to do farming and. They're away from all of the technology and just with nature. It's, it, 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 it's actually really nice to, to, to give our students these natural... And if we put value in them, then they'll see values. If the leaders of the school or the teachers really give value to certain virtues, to certain experiences, then they'll actually take it more seriously, that seed. 
because education is power. The most important, in my own opinion, the most important principle of education is to have a foundation of high ideals and high character. Because then when you build through whatever you learn, whether it's mathematics or whether it's political science or whether it's computer technology or science or whatever it may be, it's like building. And if you build on the foundation of morals and values and compassion, ultimately compassion, then what people learn is of great contribution to their own lives, to their own families, and to the whole world. Otherwise, people use their knowledge if they don't have good values. It's just greed. Greed and arrogance. And they're just limitless cravings and frustrations, and then we become envious. And Give, give our children that real wealth is not in money, it's in character. And you can be a billionaire and do wonderful things, but it should be built on the foundation of character. And if we emphasize that, in a very compassionate way, then it will have a it will have a deep effect. Swamiji, I would just like uh, to ask you that uh, how does one focus on self-development, like as you've been telling us, is there any technique one can follow to glow closer to our own selves? Uh, I can tell you from my tradition. There's three principles that are important. In Sanskrit, satsang, sadhana, and sadachar. Satsang means to be in the association of people who inspire us toward those higher values, toward that enlightened state. People with, with deep wisdom, with deep compassion, people who are really inspiring us toward the human goals of life, which ultimately is to love God and to see every neighbor as yourself. That, according to the Bible, is the first and great commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And everyone is our neighbor. <laughs> if we love God, then we're not going to be selective of who is our neighbor. We're going to see with equal vision. 
So <clears throat> when we find people who are, who are living by these principles or who are trying to live by these principles, sadhu doesn't mean somebody with long hair or no hair. Sadhu means a person who's living a very, very holy life. Many of the greatest sadhus are just mothers living at home <laughs> or fathers working at companies. Mr. Muffetlal is actually a great sadhu and Mrs. Muffetlal. Even our monks honor them because, not because of their wealth, but because of their, their values and their life and their love and their compassion. So to keep the company of such people, that's satsang. To come to events like tonight, where we're especially focused on these universal principles. To discuss it, to inspire each other on it. That's called satsang. To be with people and to, go to participate in events or to read the kind of books that really inspire us toward the evolution of consciousness. And sadhana means putting time aside for our spiritual practice. Maybe prayer, maybe puja, maybe meditation. In my tradition, it's chanting God's names especially. This mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare is an ancient mantra Man means the mind and thra means to deliver. Mantra means that sound vibration which is like a medicine that delivers the mind from the arrogance and the greed and the longings and frustrations of, of, of a disconnection. When, when our goals in life are disconnected from our real self, our own spiritual nature. That's a problem. <laughs> We're just, Emerson said like this. He wrote that the reason why the world is in such chaos and there's so much conflict and it's lying in heaps is because man or humanity is disconnected from his own self. So sadhana means to actually put some time aside to actually reconnect. It's a spiritual practice. It's like food for the soul. Somehow we find enough time to eat food for our body because we need strength. So to get spiritual strength, we need some food for the soul making that connection. And sadachar means to live with character. To live with integrity. Where we understand what our values are and we don't cross a certain line beyond what compromises that. Even if there's temptation that I can get so much if I cross that line. Or there's fear that I may lose so much if I don't cross that line. But if we understand the value 
of that of my of our character as as our real wealth and we really make progress so keeping inspiring company giving some time for our own spiritual practice to reconnect and actually living with that character in sanskrit seva seva means to to really live by the principle that the greatest gift we have is the opportunity to serve in getting something there's a little bit of happiness to the mind that usually just kind of it's an agitation that we think is happiness but in giving there's a satisfaction of the heart if we give the right thing yes and we know we're making progress in our human evolution when we find more joy in sharing than in just expecting to get something huh and then our, and then our reason to earn is to share it's a business principle to earn with integrity and to spend with compassion if we live by those two things we could really be happy and really give some a seed of something so beautiful and valuable to our children and to the world to earn with integrity and to spend with compassion On behalf of all of us, thank you so much for gracing us one more time. Uh, my wife and I have been fortunate enough to be here three times, and it's always very enlightening and inspirational. Um, Vivek's task to you was to speak to us about um, recognizing the divinity in everyone. And as the head of the American school, as Vivek pointed out, we have 52 different nationalities. And as the head of the school right now, very concerned about our Islamic population. Because much of the acts um, that fundamentalist uh, jihadists are undertaking in the world is reflecting on the religion as a whole. How do we act with compassion? How to talk to young people that are watching the news and equating these acts with a religion? You said earlier, we love the people but we may not love what they're doing. It's becoming more and more increasingly difficult to talk to people about separating these two things. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. It is... <clears throat> Wonderful question you're asking. 
and it's so very vital in the world we live today. But it's always been a problem throughout the ages in one form or another. It's important to go to the root of a problem. Just like a doctor. If you have boils on your body, one doctor will just treat the symptom of the boil. But if there's a disease in the blood, even if you make the boil all right, then there's going to be another boil and another boil and another boil. So we have to deal with the symptoms. That's necessary. But we should also understand the root cause that's bringing that about. So this type of fear, arrogance, hatred, greed for power, What is the root? Historically, it's been there in the name of nationalism. You know, Hitler was kind of like that too, but he wasn't doing it in the name of religion, he was doing it in the name of nationalism. <laughs> and others have died, you know, religion. Racism. Just recently, December 3rd of last year, I was asked to speak at Oxford University. The Oxford Union was really interesting because it was a historical debate. Can I tell you about it? It was the 50th anniversary of one of the most famous debates in the history of the Oxford Union. And the title of the debate, 50 years ago, and they were having the same debate on the anniversary. This, you see what happens is the Union takes a certain side hypothetically, and then people are meant to argue for it and argue against it. So the premise of the debate was this house believes that extremism in defense of liberty is not a vice. And they wanted two people from various parts of the world who they considered prominent to argue in support and two to argue against. Now this debate was in honor of one personality who, who debated in support of this. And it was the most famous debate of his, he was the most famous speech of his life and he was killed two months later. His name was Malcolm X. 
So it was actually in honor of Malcolm X's speech. So I was invited to be a part of this debate, but I was so busy I never really understood which side I was on or who I was debating against. So when I got to England a few days before the debate, because I spoke at different places before that, I found out that I was supposed to debate against the proposition. In other words, I was supposed to argue that extremism in defense of liberty is a vice. And this was very much on the, Malcolm X did it in the context of civil rights. And the people who were arguing to support Malcolm X was Dr. Cornell West and Angela Davis. Do you remember her? She was really an intensely um, active person. She was an activist. <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover claimed her wanted, she was the third woman to be on the top ten most wanted people in America for the FBI. And Richard Nixon as a president called her a dangerous terrorist. But she was an activist. And John Lennon wrote a song about her. And the Rolling Stones wrote a song about her. Been praising her. So she was. And to debate against them was uh, somebody named Shami Chakravarti, or somebody from Newsweek magazine, and myself. And the day of the debate, Mrs. Chakravarti didn't show up. <laughs> So it was the two of them against me. They're both PhD professors, and I came to India after one semester of college. <laughs> but anyways, that's another story. But Angela Davis, she was, I read a little about her history afterward, because we had a really interesting debate. There was like 500 people in the Oxford Union and BBC television was there. And Cornell West came and he was really dynamic. He's a Princeton professor. <clears throat> and he was taught because both of them are African-American. And then I spoke and then Angela Davis spoke. In our debate, Neither of, none of us disagreed with anything anyone else said. The Oxford Union couldn't figure out what kind of debate this was. Because <laughs> they were really, really fighting to prove from a social, political level that extremism and defense of liberty is not a vice. You know, they were saying that they were hundreds of years, their families lived in slavery. And despite all constitutional rights, you know, they didn't have freedom. They were saying, we were extremists of love, love for our people. And they were getting standing ovations. And then it was my turn to speak. And I spoke from a spiritual perspective. Now, what is extremism? 
you know, it's that it's it's when people have such arrogance that they feel that they have to prove themselves to be superior to others through oppression, through neglect, through hatred. That's an extreme vice to the very soul of humanity. So I was, so actually we all agreed with everything. But then I looked up Angela Davis and I found that she was born in this one town, I think in Mississippi, which was infamous. More than any other place in America, African Americans were being murdered there. The Ku Klux Klan and other people who were really, really racist were burning the houses, murdering, just dozens and dozens and dozens of people were being murdered. Their houses were being bombed, were being set on fire by Ku Klux Klan and other racist groups. And she was born and raised in that area, seeing family members and everybody just dying at the hands of these white people who just hated them and wanted to kill them. And the Ku Klux Klan do it in the name of Jesus. Huh? They do it in the name of Christ. They burn a cross in front. So this kind of, the root is not in Christianity. The root is not in Islam. The root is not in the religions. The root is in, it could come out in politics, it could come out in nationalism, it can come out in religion, it can come out in racism. But the problem is, there's, we're disconnected from ourselves. <laughs> We've lost our humanity due to fear and hatred and arrogance. There are people in this world, children, who learn how to hate before they learn how to reason. And if you have that hate, if you're religious, if you're a religious person, in the guise of religion, you're going to promote that hate. And if you're an atheist, in the name of atheism, you're going to promote that hate. And if you're a politician, in the name of politics, you're going to promote that hate. Real spirituality, real religion, whatever it is, is to teach us how to love how to overcome greed and arrogance. So I think it's very important that if we attack a religion on the basis of terrorists, I've studied religion and I've seen there were eras where Buddhists were terrorists. There were eras where Hindus were terrorists. You know, I remember watching Exodus when the Jews like terrorized the David Hotel or something by bombing it and killing people. And the Crusades and the Ku Klux Klan in the name of Christianity, there's terrorism. 
Every religion has that. It's not the religion. It's the disease. And we try to recruit people and give justification for it in the name of God. And that could come out anywhere. But if we attack religions, then what, what usually happens then is we make it worse. <laughs> we actually have to attack what it really is. It's not Islam. It's that fear and arrogance and hatred that people are being taught in the name of God. And I think what's really important is for, for especially our children to learn the common values of all these great religions. Because if we really go to the essence, so even though there may be different historical um, <clears throat> stories and there may be different philosophical ways of explaining things and there may be different terminologies, <coughs> And when we really go to the root, the character and the qualities of a holy person, they're very much the same. They're very much universal. You know, sometimes I go to Assisi in Umbria. And St. Francis, he went to try to convince the Islamic Sheik and the, and the Crusades to stop fighting. Because <laughs> there were tens and thousands, hundreds of thousands of just battling over you know, who had the rights to Jerusalem for generations. And he was preaching to the Christian Crusades and he was preaching to the Islamic people, trying to somehow or other un get them to understand, you know, you have common values. <laughs> We're all coming from the same God, the same source. Oh, I think it's very important because if, if in, in the propaganda of the world today is so strong to divide people and through creating those divisions to manipulate them, to manipulate them for the purpose of inducing them to be weapons in their hands. And one of the ways that we can help prevent that is actually um, <clears throat> inoculating by actually teaching the common spiritual values that we all share. And if they feel loved by people, they're not going to go against them. But if they feel hated by people, they, they, they can easily fall victim to that propaganda. But those are some of my thoughts on a very complex and deep issue.
You cannot dispel darkness with darkness. You cannot put out a fire with kerosene. <laughs> we cannot dispel hate with hate. And this is really what education is very much needing, is this um, <clears throat> to equip people, to equip our children to actually be able to reason based on these universal principles of values. It's really important. You know, I grew up a Jew and people, a lot of people hated me because I was a Jew. In my father's generation, a lot of my family was murdered because they were Jews. And the people who did it, it was for political reasons, but they all called themselves Christians. <laughs> it's not Christianity. St. Francis didn't do that stuff. St. Anthony didn't do that stuff. Jesus didn't do that stuff. He taught love. He taught peace. He taught forgiveness. So it's really important that part of our education is to give people universal values by which we could really appreciate each other and see what we have in common. Otherwise, if they're not equipped with understanding what we do have in common with values and humanity and spirituality, then they're very much vulnerable to be victims of people who are just going to promote the differences in a very dangerous way. Do you like to add anything? Greg has a check. That I will definitely be reflecting on is getting to the root. Many of us have a friend named uh, Damon Frost, uh, who was with us for a few years, and he was um, a champion of the phrase, what are we trying to solve? Which takes you down to the root again. What are you really, what are you really trying to solve? Is it the boil, or is it the infection in the blood? So I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much.